You can turn to Luke 19. So we're going to skip ahead. We've been working through Luke a little bit at a time. We're going to fast forward to the end of Jesus' life here in Luke 19. Palm Sunday, that's what today is. It's the Sunday, the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. Give you a little context. It's Passover. Um, Many pilgrims would have come to Jerusalem. It was one of the three times a year that all the Jews were supposed to gather back into Jerusalem. Their estimates may be up to 50,000 extra people are in the city. Uh, They're all commemorating, celebrating, remembering the Passover back in Exodus. Israelites are enslaved enslaved, uh, by Pharaoh. God, through Moses, delivers them after 400 years of slavery. All of the, the symbol of that is this Passover lamb. Each family was to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on their doorpost. And when the angel of death came through, he would pass over every house that had blood on the door. So only the Egyptians um, experienced death that night. And then they come to the Israelites and say, Y'all gotta, you've got to leave. Get out of here. And that's, the, that's where Passover began. And so that's what the Jews are thinking of, all these pilgrims are thinking of during that week. They're remembering their past deliverance from slavery. They're under similar circumstances. They're not necessarily enslaved, but they're definitely oppressed by this pagan foreign government of Rome. And they're thinking, when? When is that going to happen for us again? So that's the context. And then Jesus comes riding into the city. And that's what we're going to look at, starting in verse 28. Of chapter 19. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent, excuse me, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down on the ground, tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you do not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words." Uh, We're going to start at the end and work back to the beginning. Luke doesn't spend a lot of time on uh, the cleansing of the temple. You'll see more on that in Matthew and Mark and John, maybe because Luke's writing to a Gentile audience and the temple doesn't necessarily have a special place in their life or in their heart. They actually wouldn't have even been able to participate in the life of the temple. So he moves past it pretty quick. I think for us, looking at that, it's only the second time we see Jesus in the temple in Luke, the first being when he was 12 years old and he says, He's, his parents lose him. They, they leave him. 
uh, behind in Jerusalem, and they come back and find him, and they say, well, he says, well, where did you think I would be? Of course I'm going to be in my father's house. And then we see him here again, and he says, it's, it's my house. My house will be a house of prayer. He's restoring the temple to its original function, its intended purpose, a place where people can meet God and learn about God. He's teaching in the temple over time. Uh, temple authorities have become more interested in making money off people than helping them uh, connect uh, and engage with the Lord. And so Jesus is restoring the temple to its purpose. Luke spends most of his time on the actual triumphal entry. That's what that's called, and we'll do the same. So I ride into Jerusalem and on a donkey, and you don't care. Doesn't Nobody notices. Not a big deal at all. Jesus rides in on a donkey, and suddenly it's this massive celebration, all of this fanfare, what's going on. He spent three years going around telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He spent three years healing people who were sick, raising people who were dead, walking on water, calming storms, feeding thousands of people with a lunch, uh, delivering people from demonic bondage, challenging the religious leaders, uh, telling the poor, the outcast sinners, hey, you've got You've got opportunity here. God loves you and wants a relationship with you. He spends three years doing all of this work. And for three years, people are going, is, is he the one? Is, is this the guy? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? Jesus has been coy. He's dropped hints, but he's never come out and said yes or no. He tends to tell people, be quiet. Don't say anything about me when he does stuff. But people are wondering. There's this huge following. People have been tracking with him for three years, and they want to know, is he the guy? And so what Jesus does, he's been walking since Luke 9.51. If you go back and look, it says in Luke 9.51, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. So he makes a point. This is where I'm going, and he starts walking. Every time we ever see Jesus, he's walking. We've never seen him ride anything anywhere. He's a mile out from his destination, and suddenly he says, get me a donkey, because I want to write it. It's not because he's tired. It's because he's trying to make a statement. And this is the statement he's trying to make. This is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's the key statement. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Everybody knew that prophecy. Everybody knew that verse in Zechariah. So you're a Jew, and you're, it's Passover, and you're thinking about Moses, and you're thinking about the way God delivered your ancestors from slavery through him. And now you're saying, we're under a similar situation. We've got this oppressive government that's weighing down on us. And this is the week in our year where we focus on the idea of deliverance. And we've got this guy who spent three years doing some incredible things and saying some incredible things, and he's been very coy about his identity, and then you see him riding on a donkey. And that's what you think. You think, he's the one. He's it. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the king. And so there's no other response other than this celebration. And the people get it. They understand what he's saying. That's why they cut down palm branches. Those are a symbol of victory. That's why they lay their coats on the ground it's a sign of honor that's why they come out to meet him that's what you do when a king comes in victoriously jesus is not claiming jesus is not making a claim i'm the king jesus is making a declaration that he is he's not throwing his hat 
into the ring. He's saying, I'm it. It's already done. I am the king. I'm riding in victoriously. You think about that. Five days before he's crucified, he comes in and says, I've already won. I'm already the king. And the people, they, they get it. And so they respond with all of this fanfare and celebration. And then in the midst of that massively joyous atmosphere, he stops. And he looks at Jerusalem and he starts to cry. Weep is what the Bible says. And it expresses this lament over the city. It's this huge shift. It's a 180 degree shift in the emotion of the moment. Everybody's up and they're celebrating. And they're like, yes, the one we've been waiting our whole life for. The older folks are saying, this is the one we've been waiting for generations for is finally here. And he pushes pause and he weeps over this city. And he says, it's, it's not good. This whole thing is about to be destroyed. He's talking about the city representing the religious establishment. You're done. This whole thing is about to be devastated. He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem. It happens in 70 AD, about 40 years in the future from when Jesus rides in. You can look it up on Wikipedia and get the details. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who describes it. He describes it exactly the way Jesus says it will happen. He says, the Roman army so leveled the walls, they dropped it down to ground level, you wouldn't know there was ever a city here. That's how much they destroyed. 1.1 million people died. Most of them were Jews. A devastating time in Jewish history. And Jesus predicts it here. And that's he's weeping over what's going to happen to these folks. So that's what's going on. Let me give you a, a couple of things I want you thinking about. One, this king, Jesus is a king. We get that. You've heard that. I think you can see here a few things about who this king is, what kind of king that he is. He's righteous. We're not going to spend any time on that. He restores the temple to its rightful place. He's passionate. I don't know how that sits for you. We see emotion in him. We see anger and great sadness. I don't know if you consider Jesus or God to to have emotions. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God is not... uh, He's emotional. He, there's, there's passion there in him, and we see that reflected in Jesus. The two I want us thinking about are compassion and humility. We see compassion in this lament, and we see humility in the way that he rides in. We'll do compassion first. So again, uh, Jesus weeps over the city. We see him weep twice uh, in the Gospels. Once in John 11, Lazarus dies, and that makes sense to us. It's normal. It's natural. Lazarus is one of his good friends. Jesus is close to Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. John eleven five says he loves them. It makes sense. You would cry if one of your friends died suddenly. And so that to us is not shocking. It's natural. This to me is not in the same ballpark. So he is weeping over this city, this religious establishment that has been rejecting him, that's in the process, it says, of looking to destroy him, will ultimately hand him over to be tortured and executed. That's who he's weeping for you think about that some people wonder like what's what's god's heart towards people who reject him who resist him who are rebellious towards him here it is you've seen jesus you've seen the father this is how god feels about people who say no to him he doesn't wipe his hands of them he doesn't say good riddance he doesn't say you're going to get what you deserve he doesn't say you watch out he none of that he weeps The same word, he's weeping over a city, the same word weeping over his friend who's died. That's the emotion there. 
It's not normal. It's not natural. It's this deep, deep compassion that the Father has, that Jesus has, even for those who've rejected him and are walking away from him. This is Luke 13. This is a lament from earlier in Jesus' ministry. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It's what it hangs on. You were not willing. Jesus says, this is my desire is to pull you in, to create a place, to create family for you. I came to bring you peace. The word there is shalom. That's the Hebrew word that's behind that. That's not just the absence of conflict. That's well-being vertically with God and well-being horizontally with everyone else. That's what I've come to do. I've come to bring peace. I've come to draw you in, and you're rejecting me. And if you're going to reject me, there's not, there, there are no other options. If you say no to my offer of pulling you in, then there's nothing left but you being out. If I'm coming to bring you peace, I'm coming to bring you well-being, and you say no, there's nothing left but destruction. It's interesting to me to kind of think through that all the way. Well, why didn't God just make us people who would say yes? If he loves us so much, if this is his heart for people who are resisting and rebelling and rejecting, then why did he make anybody like that? He's God. He could have done anything that he wanted to. So how come there's only 2 billion Christians in the world and 5 billion who aren't? Why do so many say no? Why do so many persist in rebellion? Why can't he fix it? Can I make you love me? Probably, because I'm lovable. (laughs) But most people, you can't. Can I make, you can't make somebody love you. You can't make somebody trust you. You've tried, you've broken trust with somebody. And you've said, I'm going to earn it back. What do I have to do to make you trust me? And the answer is, you can't. You can't do enough. At some point, the other person has to say, I'm going to make a choice to trust you again. I'm going to give you trust. I can't make you love me. At some point, you have to choose and say, I'm going to choose to love you. And the same thing is true of God. He is omnipotent. This is something he cannot do. He cannot make people love him, and he cannot make people trust them. By definition, love has to be freely given. If it's forced, it's not love. By definition, Trust has to be freely given. If it's forced, it's not trust. It's something else. It's manipulation. There's something else going on. But it's not love and it's not trust. He can't make you. And he can't make anyone else. Many of you during this time of Lent, we've been praying for people who are far from the Lord. And for some of you, your heart breaks for people who don't know Jesus. And there's a part of you that says, why can't he just fix it? Why can't he just make them? Because he can't. The whole nature of the enterprise is I'm looking for people who desire to be in a relationship with me. So the the nature of what he's trying to do precludes him from making us do anything. And you see his heart. He is not callous. He is not disinterested. He's not uh, passive. He says, I came to you. What does he say about Jerusalem? All you do is kill and stone the people I've been sending. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I've been sending people to you, trying to get you to wake up. 
And you kill them. That's what you do. I send my son, and what do you do? You kill him too. That's the parable right before the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 18. You kill him too. And yet his heart still breaks for people who resist and reject and rebel. I want you to see the deep, deep compassion that God has for people. Some people hang him and say, if he really cared, then. No. I want you to see. I don't want you to see. I think he wants you to see. He cares. Whoever it is that's there in your head, he cares more than you do. It's not to belittle your love for somebody at all. I want you to see. He cares more than you. You can trust him with them. Ultimately, the choice is theirs. It's not yours, and it's not his. It's theirs. There are devastating consequences for saying no, absolutely. There's every opportunity to say yes. As you're thinking about and praying for these people who are far from Jesus, I want you to recognize the one, you're not trying to convince him to love somebody who he's written off. You're asking him to pursue someone who he is, who he loves deeply, even in the midst of their rejection and their resistance and their rebellion. And if that's you this morning, Here's your Easter challenge. One week. If you're here on Palm Sunday, you're going to be here on Easter. Right? It's a bigger day. So you got a week. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask the Lord every day, simple. Show me your heart for me. That's it. Six words. Show me your heart for me. He's a, and just see what happens. I would love for you to send me an email if you're praying that. I won't hunt you down and I won't. I just lets me pray with you as you're doing that. But if that's you this morning, if you would say, I resist, I reject it. I'm even rebellious towards the Lord in some ways. I don't want what he's offering. Just ask him to show you this week how he feels about you. Ultimately, we only have two choices. We either get what we deserve or we get what we don't. And some of us think we want what... We want to get what we deserve. That's fair. You don't want it. Here's what you deserve, and here's what I deserve. Justice is, I get what I deserve. That's judgment, and that's the wrath of God, his righteous anger poured out on sin that I've committed. The wages of sin is death. I don't want it. I want what I don't deserve, grace. I want what I don't deserve, mercy. That's what he's saying to Jerusalem. I came Grace and mercy. And you said, no, we'll take our chances. We want what we deserve. And that's the destruction of their city is the result.
Ultimately, that's what it gets down to for us. But I want you to see the heart behind that, this deep compassion God has. He's not indifferent to the plight of people who are rejecting and resisting him. Second thing you see, the humility of Jesus. Zechariah 9.9 uses the word. He's humble. He rides on a donkey. He doesn't come in on some war horse. He's humble. When we think humble, it's a tricky concept for us. It means a couple of different things in the New Testament. One way to look at humility is a recognition of our need. That's what we talked about last week when we talked about poor and rich. Recognizing our need, that is humble. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, those who recognize their need. Um, Humble like a child, that's the idea of recognizing need and dependence upon others. That's not what we see here. The humility that we see here is maybe more what you're thinking about. Tim Keller calls it self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And gives Jesus as an example, this one who was in nature equal with God and did not consider that something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a servant, even to the point of death. It's this picture of humility that says, I'm, not, I'm doing what's best for you. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. As a ransom for many. That's the kind of king that we serve. The classic example is John 13. This is just a few days after Jesus rides in as a king. Before the feast of the Passover. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. During supper. When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Simon's son to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he'd come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. It's not a contradiction to Jesus riding in as a king. It's an illustration of what kind of king he is. There's continuity there. I'm the king, and this is what it looks like. I serve all of you. Think about that. He already knows Judas is going to betray him, and he washes his feet anyway. Have you ever washed anybody's feet? It's nasty. Now wash the feet of someone who you know is about to stab you in the back. It's kind of that compassion thing that we were just talking about. You see the greatness of God's heart for people. He washes, his, he washes Judas's feet, even though he knows in a few hours he's going to hand him over uh, to the authorities. Humility, something that we want to develop. Compassion something that we want to develop. Colossians 3 says that we need to clothe ourselves with humility and compassion. We want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That means we want to grow in those areas. He's this king who's compassionate and humble. We're not going to be kings, but we want to take on his character as much as we can before we die. So for us, that looks like growing in compassion and growing in humility. We'll dive into each one of these things a little bit as we move towards communion compassion that's why we do what we do it's motivation every time you see jesus and compassion in the gospels that he always acts every time he feels compassion he then acts on that he feels compassion and he heals somebody he feels compassion and he raises someone from the dead he feels compassion and he feeds a crowd that's hungry he never says bless your heart he never says that's a pity he never says i'm going to get around to it another time compassion always translates into action for him. It's not the only reason he does things. He's also motivated out of obedience. 
But it is one of the reasons that he does things. It's, it's the why. Again, it's motivation. And so we want to grow and develop compassion. Now, for some of us, we're thinkers. And so compassion does not come easily or naturally to us. We're not used to being led by our feelings. Honestly, we don't trust our feelings. Some of you have feelings about every three or four years. And so you don't even know what they are when you have one. And so you're not going to trust it at all. It's no excuse. No excuse to say, well, this isn't for me. I'm not wired this way. The one who wired you said, clothe yourself with compassion. There's there's no excuses there for us just because we tend to fall more on the thinking side than the feeling side. So how do I develop compassion? And everyone needs to. What does that look like? The The only way I know is to spend time with God. For me, it's not reading the Bible. That's kind of a thinking thing. It's spending time in God's presence. And worship, to me, is the best way of doing that. Not just on Sunday morning, but personally and individually. Make a little playlist and take 15 to 30 minutes once or twice a week. Don't have, Not worship in the background while you're doing something else. God gets my full focus as I'm worshiping. And for some of you, you'd rather get a root canal. Like, that sounds awful to you. And that means you probably need to do it. That's the, I don't know how else to engage the heart of God apart from engaging his heart relationally. And as you spend more time with him, then the things that move him will begin to move you. The only time I get emotional is in this room. And the only things that really make me emotional, I think, is when it's the Lord. That's not to manipulate you. That's just to give you an example I think as I spend more time with him, then my heart begins to be moved by things that move him. And y'all do. And he wants you to know. So I stand up here and cry. Because it's not me. I don't love you that much. No, it's not. It's him. He cares, and he wants you to see it. And for some of you, the only way you'll know is to see somebody do this. So what does that say to you? What does it look like for you to clothe yourself with compassion? Because when you do, you're a reflection of God's heart for people. They need to, some of them need to see it. It's not enough to hear God loves you. They want to see it. And sometimes the only way they're going to see it is through your broken heart. So we need to learn how to develop this. It's what motivates us towards action and engaging others. And again, for me, worship is, is the best place to do that. If you need songs, talk to Bo. He'll, he would love to make you a playlist. He would love to give you some stuff to listen to. And he can talk through with you. What does it look like to do this by myself? Where I don't look like an idiot. What am I supposed to, how am I supposed to do this? And he would love to walk you through any of those things. But again, there's got to be that commitment on our part to say, let's grow in compassion. And we also want to grow in humility. If compassion is motivation, it's why, then uh, humility, it's our posture, it's how. It's how we approach other people. It's how we love. It's 
how we act. It's how we serve. It's how we engage. So we talk all the time about doing our deal and living out our calling. Compassion is one of the motivations for doing that. And humility is always the posture for that. It's that Philippians 2. I'm doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of vain conceit. I'm considering you better than me. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to push my agenda. I'm not even trying to change you. All I'm doing is serving you. All I'm doing is loving you. All I'm doing is blessing you. That's the only thing that's going on. That's the only thing in my heart towards you is what's best for you. No other agenda, no ulterior motive. That's it. That's true humility. And we want to cultivate that mindset. I, I feel humility kind of rests, begins in our mind much more so than in our heart. You may not find that to be true. I don't know if it's difficult for people who are feelers because I'm not one to grow in this. But it may be. These are the things that we see from Jesus in John 13. John says Jesus knew four things. And out of those four things, he puts on this towel. He knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew what time it was. It says he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew his position. He knew he had come from God. He knew his origin. He knew he was going back to God. He knew where he was headed, his destination. And knowing those four things, he then puts on this Towel, And so my question is, do you know those four things? If you want to develop humility, this posture that says serve, bless, love others with no motivation other than what's best for them. How do I grow in that? I think if you can begin to meditate on these four things, kind of chew on them, look at, think through the dimensions of these things, again, just kind of dwell on these things, I think they'll move you towards this posture of humility. Do you know what time it is? Read 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. It's a great passage. It begins with the end is near, and then Peter bullet points. Because the end is near, do this. I want you to love people. I want you to offer hospitality. I want you to forgive, and I want you to use your spiritual gifts. And he breaks them into two categories, speaking and serving. Everybody falls into one of those. You're a speaker or you're a server. And you use those gifts to the glory of God and the betterment of other people because the end is near. What he's saying is the clock is ticking. So let's realize what's actually important. We can't live in a, in a permanent crisis mode, and that's not what I'm saying. You can't live, some people say, live like Jesus is coming back to, tomorrow. If Jesus is coming back tomorrow, then I'm not going to go to work. I can't do that every day unless he actually comes back tomorrow. So it's not living under this permanent crisis, this drop. It's not that at all, but it's this recognition that Jesus' return is imminent. It is near. And so in light of that, what's actually important? We've said we live in an affluent culture. Weeds grow up like crazy. Knowing that the end is near helps me identify what's actually a weed, what's choking out what God wants to do in my life, and what's fruit. The end is near. Those are my glasses. The end is near. So in light of the fact that Jesus' is re- return is imminent, in light of the fact that he's going to make all things new, in light of the fact that everything that is not eternal is going to burn, then what is important? That allows me to serve because you're important and they're important because those are the things that are going to last. Do you know your position? Ephesians 2, you've been seated with Jesus in heavenly places. That's the top. You can't get higher than that. It's first chair. Highest rung on the ladder. And so if that's where you're seated, that's reality for you, then you can take the lowest spot here. It doesn't matter 
what your position is here because you're already seated with him ultimately. There's freedom for you to get as low as you can here because you've already been raised as high as possible there. And that's ultimate reality. Do you know where you've come from? That you're created in the image of God, that you've been adopted into his family as a son or a daughter. That's where you get your sense of value and worth. Therefore, you're free to do the most menial task. You're free to give your life away. You're free to be stepped on and walked over. Because none of that has anything to do with your value. Your value and your worth is determined by God and it's set. He's already said, this is what I think of you. You're mine. I've adopted you. I've made you and I've adopted you into my family. You're a son. You're a daughter. That's unshakable. And so out of that sense of confidence in my identity in Christ, then I'm free to give my life away for others. It doesn't matter what their response is to me at all. It doesn't matter if they're grateful or ungrateful. It doesn't matter if they're accepting or rejecting. It doesn't ma- None of that matters because that doesn't affect who I am. Who I am is solid. In the Lord, you know where you're going. New heaven, new earth. He's remaking all of it. You're not going to live in the sky somewhere. Read Revelation. He's making everything, everything new. Yes, he's going to cleanse the earth. He's going to cleanse it of the bad stuff. He's not throwing it away. We're going to live here in some form. I can't fathom. So in light of that, that's my ultimate home. That helps me serve. I already have a place permanently, so I don't need a place here. I don't need a position. I don't need a title. I don't need a role because I've already got got all of that in a place that's going to be forever. So I don't need one in a place that's going to be temporary. As you meditate and dwell on those things, it will free you up to serve others. Some of you are too smart for your own good. Some of you are, you're, you're too good at getting things done. And it's so easy for you to fall into two agendas instead of just one. I can just serve you, but I can also get this done at the same time. You can't do, no, it's just one. No double agendas, no ulterior motives. If you're solid in these four things, it will free you up to just bless and love And serve other people without needing anything back from them. Or necessarily even trying to get them to do anything. Again, the decision is theirs. It's not yours. Your responsibility is motivated by compassion and from a posture of humility. I want to serve you in whatever way that I can. We're going to close with communion. Uh, The way way we take that here at Stonebridge will come forward. About a row at a time. We'll have gluten-free communion here up on these tables. We'll have three stations up here. Break off a piece of bread. Dip it in the juice. We'll have ministry teams in the corners. And we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But there are a couple of things I want you thinking about. One, compassion. Do you have it? And I want you thinking specifically, not in general. I want you that we're going to pray. And this is what we're going to ask the Lord. Show me. Is there someone, most likely, maybe a situation, most likely it's someone, that I need to show compassion to that I'm not. Humility, same thing, not in a general sense, very specifically. Is there a situation where I, that I need to approach from a posture of humility and currently I'm not? I'm working an angle. I'm, I'm doing something else.
For some of you who are maybe more feeling-oriented, that whole idea may be difficult because you're, you're responding to what other people are giving to you. And so it's difficult for you to maintain that posture of humility if you're not appreciated or if you've been burned. And that may be something for you to think about with the Lord. There's some debate, kind of scholarly debate, they talk about these things, where the same people who cried Hosanna on Sunday crying crucify on Friday. And there are people who say yes and there are people who say no. I think the answer is yes and no. I think it's both. I think it's some of the same people, not all of them. I think what you, what you have going on there, sometimes that's used to illustrate the fickleness of our hearts. I don't know if that's accurate. To me, it's a picture of the devastation of disappointment and what that does to our hearts. I think you have people who have who've been waiting for years and years and years for a king. And they think it's Jesus. He's doing all the things that make them think he's it. But they don't know because he hasn't said And then on that Sunday, he finally says, it's me, I'm the guy. And so they erupt hundreds of years of pent-up hope is expressed in this Palm Sunday. He's teaching in the temple throughout the week, and it's awesome. It says they're hanging on his every word. The temple authorities want to kill him, but they can't get to him because everybody is flocking to him. Then come Friday morning... Everybody gathers, and Pilate brings him out. And he's beat up. He's been abandoned. He looks beat down in some ways. And I think what's going on in the hearts of some of those people on Sunday is they're going, he's a fraud, and they're ticked. He's not who he said he was. He allowed us to believe that he was the king, and he's not because that's not what happens to a king. If he's the one that God's, God wouldn't allow that to happen to the one that he sent to deliver us. That doesn't look like deliverance at all. That looks like somebody just got their head handed to them by the very government who he's supposed to overthrow. And they're angry. I don't think they're fickle. I think they're mad because they think they've been lied to. They think they've been conned, scammed. He's a fraud. He's not who he said he was. I think some of them are mad. They're mad probably a little bit in themselves. We should have listened to the religious leaders. They were telling us all along he wasn't the, it wasn't him. Now look, they're right. And so they move from Hosanna to crucify because they feel like they've been kind. They're disappointed, devastated maybe. Their hopes, he allowed them to put their hopes in him and then those hopes seem to be crushed. I'm wondering, I'm thinking... There's a handful of you here today who are in that same boat. There's been a time in your life where you've said, Hosanna, it's him. And you put your hope in him. And it didn't pan out. And you're angry. And for some of you, you can't say that. Like you can't say you're too good of a person to say I'm angry at God your your upbringing won't allow you to say that because it feels blasphemous but if you're honest if we could open it up that's what we'd see and I want you to hear this morning his heart towards you is the same he wants to wash your feet doesn't matter if you're angry or rejecting or resisting or rebellious 
what he's saying is today, this morning, will you give me a chance? Will you open yourself up to me again and see what I'll do? Let's pray. God, I want to pray for those three groups. I want to pray for those of us who wrestle with compassion. If we're honest, we're not. We might not say we're hard-hearted, but we're definitely not compassionate. God, I pray that you would stir, um, just begin to develop that within us. And that's scary for those of us who are not feelers. Emotions are foreign to us, and they're not easy to control, and we don't trust them. And the whole idea of creating space to feel, that's not necessarily anything that we're looking forward to. So I pray that you would lead us in that. That we would all be men and women who are clothed by compassion. Absolutely we would move forward out of obedience. And God, I pray that we would combine that obedience with compassion and we would move forward out of it as well. God, I pray even in terms of calling That's one of the ways that we would know where you're calling us because of the compassion that we feel for people in situations that's unusual. We would say, that's not me. I don't cry about that kind of stuff. I don't get fired up about that kind of stuff. And that would be a clue to us that you're stirring our hearts to engage with those people and in those uh, situations. God, I pray for those who wrestle with the whole idea of humility. Pray for those who think incorrectly. They think humility means thinking less of themselves. And so it's groveling. And no, thinking of ourselves less, God. We want to be free from thinking of ourselves at all. We don't want ourselves to even enter into the equation when it comes to how we're living life, God. We want to be free to serve and to bless and to love others regardless of their response to us. God, I pray particularly for those who've been burned, who've been hurt, and who say, I can't do that again. I've got to be guarded. I've got to keep some in reserve. God, would you bring healing to their hearts that they can approach others from a posture of humility. God, I pray for those who are just, they're really brilliant. They're really smart. They're really talented. They're really great at getting other people to do what they want. With all of those gifts, God, would you show them what it looks like to approach others from a posture of humility? Not relinquishing those gifts at all, but bringing all of those things under the lordship of Jesus. Done in the power of the Spirit. To serve others, not to manipulate them. Even for the other people's own good. And God, I pray for the angry, the disappointed, even the devastated. Those who would say... I thought he was the one. And now I'm not so sure. God, as they come forward this morning and take communion and break off bread and dip it in juice, my prayer is what they would leave here is that. And what they would receive from you is hope Peace, joy, comfort. I don't know if you can go back or if you want to go back and fix whatever is hanging out in their life. In some cases, that's not even possible. But God, I pray that you would meet them this morning, that they would give you an opportunity to wash their feet this morning. 
It's what you came to do. You didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I pray for those who are wondering if you're the one. Would you serve them here this morning? Whatever that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corners. Y'all can respond however you feel led. We'll pray with you again about anything, but particularly those three things that I mentioned. Also, one of the things that we believe is that God wants, uh, God heals us physically. Psalm 100, or excuse me, Psalm 103 says God forgives us of all our sins and heals us of all of our diseases. So if you're physically sick, we would love to pray with you during this time of communion as well. You'll be anointed with oil. Just make a little cross on your hand. It's nothing freaky. It's just following uh, James 5. And then Rita will dismiss us when this time is over. So you guys can respond as you feel led.